The opening weekend of the NFL season certainly had its moments yesterday as you've had some wacky finishes and even a tie as the league is in midseason form after its first set of games. Alabama avoids a huge scare, but there were plenty of other big upsets, including Marshall winning in South Bend over Notre Dame as they fall out of the top 25. A little bit of breathing room for the Mets, Yankees, and Guardians as we're approaching the final three weeks of the baseball season, and Albert Pujols is flirting with 700 career home runs as he's just three away. Iga Swiatek wins her second major of the year, and Carlos Alcaraz caps off a brilliant U.S. Open as the 19-year-old wins his first ever slam tournament. Plenty to dive into as the sports pool runs deep. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to... Listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media, I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Back on the scene to share all of my thoughts and opinions as we close out another week and look ahead to what the sports universe has in store for us as this is the J. Reels Podcast with your host, J. Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Now that we're diving deep into the sports pool, as I mentioned just a moment ago, and knowing that football, of course, not only just with the NFL, but college, those are two sports that could pretty much take up this entire podcast, but thankfully we'll have that. Obviously, all the baseball that we'll touch on as you have a little bit of breathing room with the division leaders, the wild card scenario is pretty much still the same. So baseball now getting to a point as we're approaching the final three weeks of the season, it's almost as if, can we just get rid of the rest of the regular season? There's not going to be much drama. Yes, I know we could talk about the NL East and maybe the AL Central to a certain extent, but baseball is starting to wind down and you would hope there'd be some separation so we could just get to October and get ready for, as I like to say, the hunt for Red October. Also in tennis, the U.S. Open has now been completed, and you have Iga Swiatek not only winning her first but second Grand Slam this year. She did win the French, and now here she is culminating with the U.S. Open there on Saturday over Anne Jabour, who had also been in back-to-back finals 
losing at Wimbledon and then here at Flushing Meadow. And then, of course, Carlos Alcaraz, what a tournament that he had, probably one for the ages when you think about it. So I'll recap that later on as the 19-year-old is now number one in the world. Can you believe it? The guy can't even go into a bar to celebrate his victory and purchase a drink. But here he is on the top of the mountain, not only winning his first Grand Slam, but also ranked as the number one men's player on the planet. So we'll have that to get into, as well as the college football. As I mentioned, you had a bunch of upsets. The schedule was not great. You had Alabama go through a scare against the Longhorns. So we will certainly unpack that. But right now, as far as week one goes, and I'm only going to give you this for this week. And the reason why I say it is because we're going to have 21 more weeks of this. And maybe they'll have a topsy-turvy, crazy NFL Sunday between now and, let's say, the World Series, where I'm going to have to make that the number one topic of the podcast on that given Monday. But because it's week one and everybody can now exhale relief, they could push baseball to the side, The NHL, which training camps open 10 days from today. Forget about that. Forget about the NBA. Now the muscles are being flexed throughout the sports world where the NFL, as always, reigns supreme. And when we take a look back just 24 hours ago, and even to a certain extent 72 because of the Thursday night game, my theme, before I get to my winners and losers, you had a lot of sloppy play. You had a lot of games where... It looked like it was not going to be any nail-biting or any, as we like to call that, witching hour between 3.15 and 4 o'clock. It didn't look like there was going to be a lot of that down the stretch, but then you saw the tides change, whether it was in Washington, whether it was in Carolina, whether it was in Cincinnati, which took almost a whole extra overtime to finally get a winner. Same for Houston, where we got a tie there. But even though football is back and everybody could jump up and down and talk about their knockout pools, which for me, I'm already knocked out week one, which seems to be a theme when it comes to this podcast, and I'll get to that in a second. But even with all that, with the poor quarterback play, with a lot of the turnovers, offensive line play, just like Swiss cheese, and when we digest all of that, and even though it was a little bitter, it was like, Being a three-year-old eating your peas or spinach from the Gerber bottle. And yes, it was tough to take and tough to swallow. But I'm sure you'd rather have that than to watch pennant race baseball. To maybe even watch a Grand Slam final as you saw yesterday afternoon out in Queens. I'm sure bad football beats perfect baseball, basketball, or any other sport you want to throw at you. And it's expected It is week one. A lot of the quarterbacks haven't played. A lot of the units have not been as cohesive. And we've seen that over the past few years where week one, it almost seems like there's a little bit of a slumber or a little bit of a shake off the cobwebs effect with some of these teams. But you would think as we get into week two, week three, the competition and the sport will be a lot more crisper when it comes to play. And we could only hope that that'll be the case. And I'm sure that will be the case because it is the Shield. It is the NFL. But with that being said, let's get right to it. My winners and losers of week one. The first one off the bat, I'm going to give it up to the New Orleans Saints. This was a team that a lot of people thought that they could make some noise in the NFC. Your sleeper team, if you will. 
And even with Jameis Winston coming off of the ACL injury and Dennis Allen, who has not had a coaching career to write home about based on his days with Oakland when he was a head coach of the Raiders. But for them to go into Atlanta on the road, which is an underwhelming rivalry, I get it for that region. Falcons, Saints, it's a battle to the bitter end. But when we look at the entire NFL, it's not one of the top rivalries that are going to jump out at you. But considering that the Falcons had a sizable lead, and when you think about how they had performed going into the fourth quarter, a team that the Falcons will probably end up winning three or four games. Their number in Vegas was four and a half. And for them to have a 16-point lead into the fourth quarter and to spit the bit the way they did, and Michael Thomas, who had come back and wants to show and prove that he's 100% healthy and one of the top receivers in football, catching two touchdown passes, and not only that, but also converting on two two two-point conversions, the Saints were able to march on out of Atlanta with a victory 1-0 and put... The Falcons out of their misery with that game, but give it up for Jameis Winston coming back the way he did, not quitting, fighting to the end, and the Saints pull away with an improbable 27-26 victory. My second winner, and believe it or not, this is going to be a shock, I'm going to give it to the New York Giants. Here they were in Tennessee, as I mentioned on Thursday's podcast during the preview, Not that I expected a lot out of Tennessee this year, but you would think that they would want to not only erase the bad memory of that divisional playoff game against Cincinnati, but the terrible taste that had been in their mouths since that time in January up until yesterday. And granted that the quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, was going through a lot this offseason with the mental health and having to cope and deal with that defeat as a number one seed in the AFC last year. But for them to have a 13-0 lead, And it looked like it was going to be maybe not smooth sailing because they are the Titans and they play a lot of close games. But at home and with the crowd behind them and the Giants, as we all know, they have been an awful team over the last five or six years. And even with Brian Dable, the new coach who had been imported from Buffalo, and even at 13-0 when the Giants scored, 13-6, you look at Brian Dable, him going for two, and it failed, and it made you think, They're too much into the analytics, the whole iPad as opposed to the eye test. And right there, I thought to myself, what is Dayball doing? I know he's trying to be aggressive. I know he's trying to probably put his fingerprints on this team to say we're going to be aggressive. We're going to do whatever it takes to win these games. But to go for two at that point where you've been trailing the whole first half and into the third quarter, and I thought that was going to be a bad sign. But as it was, they were able to chip away. And next thing you know, when they were down 20 to 13, and late in the game, as the Giants are marching down the field, they get the tie, or what looked like it was going to be a tie, at 20 to 19, as Daniel Jones had a one-yard touchdown pass to Chris Mayarek, and then what happens? He decides to go for two for the win. They convert on the two-point conversion, Daniel Jones to Saquon Barkley, and the Giants leave Tennessee with a 21-20 victory, 1-0 for the first time in probably forever, And Brian Dable, I'm sure everybody here in the tri-state area is thinking the Giants are on the verge of going to the Super Bowl, considering what the rest of the division did, Dallas losing last night, including their quarterback for six to eight weeks, the Washington football team, all right, yeah, fine, they did win against Jacksonville and come from behind fashion, but 
nobody's going to take them seriously. And then even with the Eagles, although giving up 35 points to the Lions, won their game, but everybody's going to think, at least for today, that the Giants could be in the mix for an NFC East championship. And speaking of Barkley, very impressive in his first game, 164 yards, had a touchdown, including, what was that, on 18 carries. So you wonder if the explosiveness... And him just being that dynamic running back that everybody was hoping and praying for when he was drafted out of Penn State in 2018. If he's going to add that dimension to this offense, then Daniel Jones, who knows? Not to say he's going to have a big year, but it certainly won't be all on him to deliver this team to any type of respectability and maybe even a contract extension at the end of the year. And now to my losers of the week. And the first one is the Cincinnati Bengals. Here's a team that had four turnovers in the first half. Their quarterback was under siege the whole game, and in particular the first half, where the team had looked like it shored up its offensive line woes going back to last year, and we saw it being exposed in the Super Bowl, especially toward those last couple of drives. But for the Bengals to not get out of the gate and check the receipts, I talked about this on Thursday's podcast to where I looked at game one last year where Pittsburgh had to go into Buffalo and Buffalo coming off of their AFC championship loss, but a lot of expectations in Buffalo. The game was at home, fans in the building, and the Steelers went in there. Not that they were great by any means, but they hung around and they pulled out a 23-16 victory, which was a shocker to me because that was something I did not expect. And I kind of thought the same thing going into this game. Bengals riding high from their Super Bowl appearance and then now having to go up against the Steelers team, which they embarrassed last year, and I'm sure the Steelers remember that, and they came right out of the gate with a pick six. Not only that, but like I said, the sacks, T.J. Watt, who was pretty much picking up where he left off from his Defensive Player of the Year performance last year, and sadly, and I'll talk about him in a minute, sadly, him going out late in the game with what may be a torn pectoral muscle, which will keep him out for the whole year. But when the Bengals tried to chip away, and yes, they got some breaks there, especially on that last drive with a couple of penalties, they were able to punch it in. Mind you, it looked like on the one pass to Jamar Chase, where they had first and goal with about, off the top of my head, I guess it was, what, 35 seconds left, where it looked like he may have had the ball cross the goal line as he was running out of bounds, but they had it at the one-inch line, and then they were able to punch it in, Jamar Chase, on the final play of regulation. But little did we know that the long snapper had left the game with a torn bicep, so they had a backup long snapper to where he floated that ball to the placeholder, which I believe is the punter, Kevin Huber, and... What happened? Evan McPherson blocked extra point. The game was tied. It goes into overtime. And that came back to rear its ugly head to where they had a chip shot, 27-yard field goal, I believe it was. And then it was just pulled wide left from a bad snap that looked like it went over his head. And this is what was bad when you look at the coaching of the Bengals because on third down, that's when it was, third down as they're ready to kick the game-winning field goal If the snap was well above the head, all the placeholder had to do was just pounce on it. Sit on it, it would have been a dead ball, or they would have been touched to where they had another shot on fourth down to try to get a better snap. And yes, it probably would have been about, what, maybe 32, 33 yards? But still, McPherson, we know he's a lock kicker. 
He kicked a 59-yard field goal earlier in the game. And what happened? He pulled it going to Kentucky. And then even after a doink by Chris Boswell later in the overtime, they did get a last-ditch effort. Mitch Trubisky had the pass over the middle to Pat Fryer, moved to tight end, which set up the game-winning field goal, 53 yards. And Boswell splits the uprights, and the Bengals lose as bad of an opening game as you could possibly have with all the turnovers, the special teams gaffes, and no way that they should have left that building would have lost, despite the fact that they were outplayed for pretty much three quarters of the game. And the Bengals, that's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth from now until you go to Dallas next week. And then my other loser are the San Francisco 49ers. I picked this team as my knockout pool. The Bears' offense was non-existent for two and a half quarters. And it made me even think, I talked about the Bears being an under at six and a half, and I didn't even choose them because I tried to be cute by picking the Eagles as an under with nine and a half. And here it was, the Niners, not that they were setting the world on fire offensively. Trey Lance was just awful. You could talk about the weather. And Justin Fields did not play well either when you look at his final stats, but he was able to make a couple of big plays, which is what you need from your quarterback. And obviously, Trey Lance did not do that. I get it. George Kittle was not in the lineup. But for the Niners to go into Soldier Field to perform the way they did and lay a big, giant deuce at the 50-yard line, I get it. It's one game. And when we look throughout the course of the league, there's going to be 16 teams that think the sky is falling and that the season is over after 0-1. As we all know, everybody overreacts to week one. Just like I said about the Giants a few minutes ago, I'm sure everybody's in Giant Nation with the red, white, and blue pom-poms thinking that they have a shot to maybe go to the Super Bowl. Well, I'm sure San Francisco's thinking, let's get Jimmy G back in there because it looks like we're not even going to make the playoffs based on the one-game performance. And it was awful by Trey Lance, but they get my other loser of the week. And just to recap from a Steeler perspective on that Bengals-Steeler game, now the offense was putrid also. They had three plays the whole day. Now that I think about it, four plays the whole day when I now replay it in my memory. You had that flea flicker there, which set up their field goal, and that would have been nice to punch it in for six, but they didn't do so. Then at 10-3, they had a screen misdirection to the tight end Zach Gentry that went for 31 yards up the right sideline, which set up their third play, which was the pass Trubisky to Najee Harris to make it 17-3. So those are your three plays there. And then the fourth play was the Fryermuth where Sam Hubbard was offsides, the defensive lineman by the Bengals. So Trubisky had to scramble to his left, was able to turn and throw a pass over midfield to Fryermuth, who got to about the, I believe it was maybe the 42-yard line, and set them up for the game-winning field goal. Other than that, the Steeler offense was a slog. It was just stuck in neutral the whole game. We know about what they did defensively. They were dynamic. And as I said on Thursday, this team is going to be all about their defense. But now it's going to take an enormous hit because I believe in my gut, and it's not official yet, but you would think that T.J. Watt is going to be done for the year because of a torn peck, which happened to fall on a play where he was rushing the passer and actually got a legal use of the hands as he was grappling with the right tackle. I believe it was, wasn't was Lael Collins because he's the guard, 
But either way, as he was trying to get his hands toward the face and body of Joe Burrow, he must have tore his pec on that play. Not only did he go to the sideline, but he walked to the locker room, and it does not look good if you're a Steeler fan because if he's going to be gone from this team this year, you could really forget about any chance that you have. And I'm being realistic. I said the Steelers, their high water mark's probably going to be 9-8, and eight, and at worst, 7-10. and 10. Without him, ugh, you barely have a pass rush. So you have that to deal with. And then Najee Harris, who had this foot injury during camp, where you saw him come up lame as he was pretty much twisted like a pretzel there in the overtime, I believe it was on the first drive, and he had to be forced out. They have the backup, Jalen Warren, who is a nice story, undrafted kid, but who knows how much burn he's going to get, and he's probably going to get a lot of burn, or who knows. They may have to look on the scrap heap to see who they could peel off of the waiver wire going back to the end of training camp throughout the league to get a body in there because who knows if Benny Snell is going to be the guy. He's also not going to be the answer right away. You're going to need to have a guy that's going to carry the ball, and we know that this offense has just been putrid, especially running the ball the way they did last year. So a big win for the Steelers, no matter how you slice it. But as I said on Thursday, and I'll say it now, it's going to be a long season for this Steelers squad. Let's go through some of these other games real quick. The Rams raised the banner to the SoFi Rafters, but that was the only highlight of the night because Matthew Stafford, who was sacked seven times and under siege, not only that, but you got to wonder about his arm because his passes were not as crisp, had a ton of interceptions. The Rams did not play well, to say the least. And Buffalo, who got off to a hot start, then cooled off a little bit, but then in the second half they took off and buried the Rams 31-10, to and everybody's anointing the Bills as not only the best team in the sport after one week, but pretty much have them penciled in for the Super Bowl. Can we pipe down a little bit? And I'm not saying this because of what we witnessed there on Thursday night, but all you heard Friday and into the weekend was how dominant, how great Buffalo was. This is their year. The time has finally come. Josh Allen's going to be the MVP. And that may all turn out to be that way. But again, can we pump the brakes on one week? Again, overreaction. And yes, I understand it was the defending Super Bowl champs, and I understand it was on the road, and yes, Allen played well, and their defense was stout. Rightfully so. But when you look at the Chiefs yesterday, you can say the same about them, and maybe both Buffalo and Kansas City are well above everybody else in the sport. As Kansas City won 44-21, they were up 37-7 at one point. Patrick Mahomes is already in midseason form. And Arizona looks like they're going to have a long year based on everything that happened toward the end of last year, even into the offseason with the whole Kyler Murray contract and the four hours of film study and all that that pretty much, I'm not going to say wrecked their training camp, but was a distraction. And boy, they have an even bigger distraction knowing that they got lambasted by the Chiefs yesterday at home. Minnesota got off to a great start. And before you could start with the Aaron Rodgers nonsense, and he did not play well, but we saw this last year where they had to go to Jacksonville when New Orleans, if you recall, because of a displacement where they had to play that game in Jacksonville due to impending storms. And what was that final score? I think it was 33-3 to or 36-3 where New Orleans just spanked them. But not to worry, even though Minnesota has a leg up with not only a head-to-head matchup, but of course being 1-0, I'm not going to look at this game as, uh uh-oh, 
Green Bay, this could be a long year or this could be tough sledding. This is what happens when your team is not cohesive during training camp, during the exhibition season. They're still shaking off some rust. They're still shaking off some cobwebs. That w- that's what you saw in Cincinnati. That's what you saw in a lot of other places when you think about it, even San Francisco to a certain extent. And the Packers not getting off on the right foot this year. And Justin Jefferson, I believe, caught another touchdown, 9 for 184 and two TDs. He was wide open all over the place as the Vikings just dismantle that Packer defense and shredded them big time in the air, especially with Jefferson being the catalyst to their victory. Tampa and Dallas, how much can I talk about this game? Tampa only had the one touchdown, and if I would have told you, Cowboy fans, that if you held the Brady offense to one touchdown, you probably would have thought, we won the game. Well, he only scored three points. Dak Prescott was terrible in the game, had to leave the game with a broken thumb, was going to be out six to eight weeks. So that's going to put a damper on your season. But again, it is the NFC least. I'm sure that if Cooper Rush could hold the fort between now and then, that they'll put the Cowboys in good stead with a division that, yes, I get it, you have the Eagles, and they could be a team to be reckoned with. The Washington football team, the Giants, you're not going to take too seriously, especially after one week. But the Cowboys did not look good in their season opener, and now you have to wonder whether or not the quarterback is going to be able to stem the tide here a little bit to at least play 500 ball until the time Prescott gets back, and then hopefully by then... Not a lot of damage. You may be in the vicinity a game or two back for the division, and then you take your chances from there. Speaking of Philly, they went 38-35. Jalen Hurts had a big game. But again, you have to wonder about that defense where the Lions scored 35 points, but the Eagles look pretty good right out of the gate. So do we take them seriously? I guess for one week, but again, it was the Lions. Same with Baltimore. Lamar Jackson with that contract negotiation being put on hold. A lot of the reports had him at $250 million, maybe guaranteed. He wanted a contract similar to Deshaun Watson. But as it was, they weren't able to come to an agreement. And Lamar Jackson does not have any representation, he and his mom, which obviously that's not a good sight. I get it. He's trying to go the route independently to be able to negotiate contracts without having to have an agent stand by or have to give a percentage of his deal to said agent, but who knows how this is going to unfold. We're going to have to wait till after the season, but this is a scenario where it's looking like he being football's version of Aaron Judge, pushing all of his chips to the middle of the table, and he's probably going to get that record contract if the Ravens have a monster year, similar to the MVP year he had three years ago. But again, it was against the Jets, Joe Flacco, former teammate, and obviously Super Bowl MVP winning quarterback of the Ravens a decade ago. With Zach Wilson out of the lineup, but the Jets look like the same old Jets. And the Ravens, for all that you want to talk about in their 24-9 victory, let me see this against better competition, and then we'll judge a lot better when it comes to this Raven team. Although I think they will have a big year. I did say that the other day, and I'll say it now. You have to beat the teams that are in front of you, and the Jets happen to be there, and they took them to the back of the woodshed and beat them soundly. New England... Always having issues in Miami, as they've had during the Bill Belichick era. They lose 20-7 to yesterday down in South Florida. Tua took over Loa. Numbers look good. Had his moments. But overall, he had some throws where he bounced past. But we can't look at that today. They did win the game. Can't rain on their parade. 
Mac Jones leaves with a back injury, so you wonder how that's going to play out for the Patriots, who are certainly licking their wounds after getting beat up in South Florida. And how I look at the Patriots, who actually go into Pittsburgh next week. The Patriots have no game-breaking ability players. Yes, you could say Devontae Parker, the former Dolphin, but this isn't a team that has a lot of weapons offensively. Defensively, as we know, they lost some pieces. J.C. Jackson being the big one going to the Chargers in L.A. But this Patriot team, how could you define this team? Years past, you know it was all about Brady and their offense, and their defense did have an identity. I mean, this is going back now to the Teddy Bruschi days, but you always thought with a Bill Belichick team, no matter how good they were, how great they were, you knew they had an identity. For the first time in 20-some-odd years, what's this team's identity? That's what you have to ask yourself if you're a Pats fan. And who knows if they're going to be able to come out of Pittsburgh with a victory, despite the fact that the Steelers are also hurting. But that's another story. But the Patriots put up seven points in a 20-7 loss down in South Florida. Jacksonville, Washington, I talked about how the Washington football team came back. And I believe Jacksonville actually had a good shot to win this game because when we look at Doug Peterson, who now under the helm in Jacksonville, and for them to go ahead and take the lead there midway through the fourth quarter, and for the Washington football team, I was also almost going to call them their former name, but the Commanders, how they were able to fight back, come back where Carson Wentz was throwing the ball all over the lot there in the fourth quarter as he got two touchdown passes and they were able to prevail. Wentz, who had a weird game stat-wise, did throw for over 300 yards, had four touchdowns, but also two interceptions. But the Commanders were able to win their first game, and Jacksonville could have a long year and certainly had that game, not necessarily in their back pocket, but not a good sign as Jacksonville was unable to hold a lead in the fourth quarter on the road, which would have been a nice victory for them. And as I wrap up here, Indianapolis and Houston, your first tie of the year, and we see a lot more of these ties over the years, which I do not like. And I'm going to say this. I wish the league, granted they want to player safety and all, I get that. I know they're trying to look after the player in this regard by not playing a 15-minute overtime, but these 10-minute overtimes have to go. Because you almost had a scenario in Cincinnati where that game was tied, even though that game should have been long over, as I detailed a little while ago. But for the... Colts to come back, they were down 20-6, to and they were, talk about a slumber. It looked like the Texans were going to be the big star of the day, knowing that with everything that's happened to them this offseason, and even going back to last year, having to put Deshaun Watson on ice, then the trade, then Davis Mills being your quarterback, who's going to be the coach? Oh, it's Lovey Smith. All right, so Lovey Smith's now the coach. And they had an opportunity to win this game, but the Matt Ryan-led Colts, Jonathan Taylor with 161 yards on the ground, They were able to come back and tie the game, and then Rodrigo Blankenship misses a field goal there late in overtime, and it ends up being a tie. They're just ugly. I wish they could go back to the 15-minute overtime. If it's a tie after the 15 minutes, you could accept that. 10 minutes goes by in a snap. And I understand sometimes with penalties and reviews, timeouts, etc., it could take a while, but uh, anytime you have a tie in the NFL, it's just it's awful. There's no other way to cut it. So you had that scenario, and then also Carolina, where they had a roughing the passer call, which they're going to call it, even if you're breathing on the quarterback's helmet, 
they're going to call it, where the Panthers looked like they were going to prevail after them getting off to a slow start and Baker Mayfield not getting on track. He was able to do so there late in the game where they had a lead, but then they had a 58-yard field goal attempt, which ended the game and won the game. And that's one thing about these field goal kickers. They kick 50-yard field goals as if they're chip shots. You look at McPherson from 59 yesterday, Boswell had a 56-yarder, hit the upright, but that could have been from 65. And then Boswell hits the 53-yard winning game field goal at the end, as I got my words all mixed up. And for the Browns to get out of there with a 26-24 victory, and again, on a last-second field goal, which, come on, 58 yards. You wouldn't attempt that in any way, shape, or form 20, 30 years ago. Maybe kickers weren't as strong. Maybe they didn't have that range where they said, ah, yes, I could kick it from 70, let alone 50. But these kickers are doing it pretty much in their sleep. Now, Justin Tucker, we know, is a Hall of Famer, but he kicked one from 66 yards. He got a couple of doinks to get it through. But it's amazing to think that these place kickers are able to kick 50-yard field goals as if they're, like I said, extra points. And as we know, sometimes those extra points are tricky to say the least. But for Carolina and Baker Mayfield wanting to exact revenge against his former team, who had a better second half than the first, and Cade York was the guy who kicked the field goal, was from 58 yards with eight seconds to go. So the Browns win their first game of the year down in Carolina. And then lastly, to wrap up my schedule, I believe that's pretty much it. Yeah, I covered everything when I look at week one. And then tonight, oh, I didn't cover L.A. Chargers and the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, I didn't really follow this game that much. I know Devontae Adams had a big game on the offensive side, but the Chargers were able to beat the Vegas Raiders 24-19. Didn't really get a good feel of this game because after the Steeler game, I was just, I had to decompress. I aged 10 years watching that game, and I didn't follow a lot of the 4 o'clock games, so forgive me, but Justin Herbert, 26-34, 279 yards, had three touchdowns. They were pretty much in control of the game, and even though they tried to come back late, the Raiders, but they were unable to get anywhere close to where they had an opportunity to win the game. So there you have it, the Chargers, who now go to Kansas City for your first Thursday night Amazon Prime game, which I'm sure a lot of people will tune into. That's pretty much your week one there in the NFL. And then tonight you have Denver and Seattle, where the old quarterback, Russell Wilson, will play against his former team and teammates. I would think he's going to get a rousing ovation. The time had come for them to part ways. And let's see what Denver does, as there's a lot of expectations in the Mile High City. And it's been mixed from what I've heard over the last few days to where a lot of people think Denver could have that big year because they have a very good defense. And obviously with the quarterback in tow, that maybe they could have a big run even in an ultra-uber-competitive AFC West, but there are others that think that they could fall flat on their face because Russell Wilson at what, 33 years old? It's not Russell Wilson of 27. So, got a point there. Let's see how that shakes down tonight as that will cap off your week one in the NFL. And on Thursday's podcast, I'll look ahead to the games, not only Thursday night, but also on Sunday. I mentioned Thursday night now because it's a very sexy matchup. Two top teams, both from the same division, Mahomes versus Herbert, should be a great matchup, and we'll get into all that come Thursday. As I turn my attention to college football, not a sexy week, but boy, did you have upsets galore, and the big one that I would have loved 
would have been Texas beating Alabama. And Alabama, talk about getting out of Dodge any way, shape, or form with a victory. And they did so with a last-second field goal, winning 20-19. to And what could you say? Alabama probably had their worst performance in forever under Nick Saban. 15 penalties, not a good game overall. The offensive line with the crowd and the way that was was just a distraction throughout. And I did watch a part of this game, mostly in the first half, and it looked like Texas certainly had a lot of opportunities to win this game. They missed a field goal, a chip shot there, and obviously that would have been the difference. But the Longhorns lost their quarterback early with a left collarbone injury and a one Quinn Ewers. They had to bring in the other kid, Hudson Card, off the bench, who eh, wasn't great, was pedestrian to say the least. But for Alabama, again, they sweated that one out and were able to fly back to Tuscaloosa with a victory. And I'm sure they're still asking themselves, oh, how do we do that? But with that performance by the Crimson Tide and Georgia winning at home against Sanford, Georgia now is your number one team in the country, followed by Alabama. Then you have Ohio State is your third-ranked team in the country. And then to round out the top five, and then even the top ten for that matter, You had all these teams move up, Michigan, Clemson, they round out your top five. And then you have Oklahoma, USC, who beat Stanford, Oklahoma State, Kentucky, now in the top ten, if you can believe it. And no, we're not talking about the basketball team. And then Arkansas round off your top ten. Reason being is because Notre Dame, you talk about Notre Dame, losing at home to Marshall, I'm sure, has their alumni And everybody who roots for the Fighting Irish, including my dear friend John Irving, sick to their stomachs because for Marshall to go in there and win in South Bend, that goes to show that the Fighting Irish are going to be not heard from for the rest of the year and with their second loss say bye-bye to any college football playoff aspirations. Marshall actually took the game over late in the fourth quarter where not only did they score a touchdown – to take the lead at 19-15, but then they had a pick six and pretty much iced the game. I know that Notre Dame tried to come back there and cut it close to 26-21, but by then Marshall was pretty much in good shape. And for them to lose that game, it certainly had them drop out of the top 25, first time in a long time, and then for all those teams to move up. So you don't have to worry. If you're a hater of the Fighting Irish, you could laugh all the way to next year because I don't care what the Fighting Irish do the rest of the year. And I know they have Clemson down the road. They could shut out the rest of their opponents. And I'm sorry, they do not deserve to be in the discussion for a national championship. But the Sun Belt Conference did have a day, not only Marshall, but also Appalachian State. You recall back in 2007 when they beat Michigan in that opening game? Well, they pretty much did the same to Texas A&M. Another team that was ranked high, sixth in the country. Well, they fall out of the top 10 as Appalachian State I tell you, they have, I get it once every 15 years, but sometimes that team is always going to be for any underdog team as the barometer. Because when we look at that Appalachian State-Michigan game, and I'll never forget, I remember watching that on a Saturday afternoon in my living room, and to think that they were able to pull off another big upset beating a top 10 team and the Aggies, Jimbo Fisher, I'm sure this one is not going to stick well, especially when it comes to any type of national championship hopes. But that was a brutal loss, to say the least. 
So the Aggies look like they're going to be on the outside looking in as we get deeper into this college football season. And then lastly, Georgia Southern could be your new Appalachian State because not only did they beat Nebraska, but in the process, the head coach got fired, Scott Frost, at 1-2. and two, And this is a team that's a far cry from the Tom Osborne 90s teams with Tommy Frazier, Lawrence Phillips, guys like that. For Nebraska to fall so far off of the college football map to have Georgia Southern going there to beat you, that's all you need to know about week two in college football. So three big upsets and three teams that either were at the top or close to the top of the rankings or once upon a time was one of the behemoths in college football, that being Nebraska. Boy, talk about lean times whether it's been over the course of the last couple of weeks or maybe the last decade plus, just bad losses for all three of those schools as they try to pick up the pieces and move forward here in this college football campaign. All right, now let's turn our attention to some baseball here as there's not really much to get into, sadly, although you have one newsworthy item that I'll talk about after we recap what's going on with the standings. But we talked about this last week between the Mets, Yankees, and Guardians, how the divisions were starting to shrink a little bit to where we thought that maybe there'd be some drama here. And as we know, there still could be some drama with now 22, 23 games left in the season. And I'll start off with the Mets real quick because they lost the game on Friday in Miami, embarrassing fashion. They lose 6-3, to and then the Braves, who at the time, had gone into Seattle winning seven in a row. They did win there on Friday night to fall out of first place for the first time all year. They were either tied or had led in first place pretty much since April the 7th. And then here it was on the 9th of September. What is it? If I do my math correctly, five months after the season started, they were now out of first place. And even then, I wasn't concerned. I wasn't worried. They had the Marlins these next two days. The Braves were in Seattle. So by any means, I was not anywhere near the ledge to where a lot of other Mets fans, I'm sure, were getting ready to jump because they thought that this was going to be the beginning of the end. I didn't look at it that way. I stayed calm, stayed cool. The Mets bounced back with two victories over the weekend. And then the Braves lose in Seattle back-to-back days. Although yesterday, they were down 6-1. They scored a run in the eighth and then five in the ninth to take a 7-6 lead. And then, thankfully, Julio Rodriguez and Eugenio Suarez hit home runs in the ninth inning to then beat the Braves 8-7. So thanks to those two guys, because if not, the Mets would still have a half-game lead in the division. But thanks to their heroics, they're now a game and a half ahead in the NL East. Is it breathing room? Absolutely not. But for at least today, knowing that, At the start of the weekend, they were a half game ahead and then fell behind as you got into the weekend. Well, now they have a game and a half cushion. The Mets now host the Cubs for three games, and then the Braves go to San Francisco. Maybe the Giants can be a little bit frisky as their season is long over. But the Cubs, who knows what they're going to have left in the tank as the Cubs come into City Field here. Let's see. Their record, obviously, 58-82. and They lost the back two games of their series over the weekend. I don't even know who they played off the top of my head. As I take a look to see, oh, ironically, they did play the Giants at home. So now the Giants, with them beating the Cubs, let's see if they could go back to the Bay Area and beat the Braves a couple times this week. That would be 
nice for all of our Met fan friends out there. So that's number one. Number two, the Yankees, who lost a brutal Friday night game to where they lose 4-2, to two, or was it 4-3? It didn't matter. They lost. But then Aaron Hicks, who dropped the fly ball to the point where he thought it was foul, had Tampa runners going all over the diamond to where they scored two runs on that play on a ball hit by Juan DeFranco. And then later, a ball sailed over the head of Aaron Hicks, who was playing left field, that to the chagrin of the Yankee fan, were booing him left and right. Aaron Boone had to take him out of the game. That's how bad it was. And you look like it could have been the beginning of a terrible weekend for the Bombers as the Rays won another game. But since then, they scored, what, six runs in the first inning on Saturday. And then yesterday, they just pounded the Rays again for a back-to-back rocking chair wins. Now the Yankees go to Boston for two games starting tomorrow. And with that two out of three win series over the Rays, they put themselves in a position where they're, although four in the loss, but five and a half in the division. So all is right in Yankee land. And then the Guardians swept the Twins over the weekend. So you could say pretty much goodbye to them. Although they're five in the loss in the division and four and a half back. And they still play another big series this coming weekend, which I want to say is a five-game series. Because I believe they're making up some games. So let me just take a quick look at that. But the Guardians, who have been teetering here a little bit, but they've shown their medal, not only sweeping the Twins, but they have, yes, five games this weekend. A wraparound series at home, starting Friday, going to Monday, and they have a doubleheader day-night on Saturday. And then they have the White Sox coming in for three after that. So this is a big stretch where the Guardians have three games at home against the Angels, which that should be easy pickings. They do have the White Sox coming in for a makeup game there on Thursday. So think about this. From this coming Thursday to the following Thursday, they have nine games against the Twins and White Sox. So they could put away the division here between now and the next 10 days. So let's see if the Guardians could do that. They have it all right in front of them as the divisions are starting to get, I'm not going to say a little bit of separation, but... If you're in the NL East, the Mets at least could breathe for another day. And the Guardians and Yankees are in good shape. As far as the wild card goes, pretty much the same. Although the Orioles look like they're going to be done for 2022 because they did not play well against the Red Sox over the weekend. They needed to at least sweep to stay in the wild card mix. But as it is right now, they are six in the loss, five and a half back. They do have another series with Toronto. And I don't know if they have any more series with Tampa. They may have one more left. But this is going to be too much ground to make up with 20-something games to go. And if I do the math, 73 and 67, that's what? 140. They have 22 games. They are going to have to make up six over the course of the next 22. That is highly unlikely for them to make it to the postseason. So right now it's all about position where the Rays and Mariners are tied, although the Rays are percentage points ahead. 78-60, 79-61 for Seattle. And then the Jays are a half game behind them, 78-61. So who gets that fourth seed, which will host a playoff wildcard round, is going to be important. So we'll see what happens there. And then in the National League, Braves are well ahead. Phillies are a game and a half over the Padres. Two in the loss, 78-62, 77-64. And then Milwaukee at 75-66, two games behind the Padres, for the final playoff spot 
in the wild card. And let's see what the Brewers will do here. It's going to be important for them to try to stay in this race because if they don't, you may just have the National League East as the only race that's left in baseball because nobody's going to jump up and down for a three-team race between Tampa, Seattle, and Toronto. And then the Mets and Braves are going to be the only races that are left. So that's what you have as baseball just tries to get through these final three weeks and into October. And one last note for baseball, Albert Pujols on Saturday tied Alex Rodriguez for fourth all-time on the home run list as he did so against the Pirates. And then yesterday got his 697th home run, which now leaves him fourth alone all-time and is just three home runs away from 700 with what? 20-some-odd games to go. I really hope he gets it. And as I said before, I'll say it one more time. If he gets a 699 over the course of these next, let's say, couple of weeks, and let's say there's about four or five games left to where he could reach 700, I would hope that the sports media will stay on top of this. I get it. It's not the all-time single season or all-time home run record. But 700 home runs, as I said then and I'll say now, who else is going to get that who's active in the sport? It's going to be a high mark for anybody out there, and I don't care what your name is. Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton, go on down the list. So to think as he gets closer, and once he gets to 699, and hopefully he does it with just a few games left, even with one game left, but you want to give him some room. You don't want him to hit 699 on the next to last day of the season. But you would only hope that the debate shows, the talk shows, all of the sports media will not only look at this record and cherish this accomplishment, but hopefully it'll have some legs to the point where it is a top news story throughout whenever this does take place. Because as I said, you could talk about the NFL all you want. You could talk about, oh, should we put in Jimmy G for Trey Lance? Should we do this? Should we do that? Aaron Rodgers, is he in a funk? No, 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 no. If Albert Pujols does get to 700, and let's say it falls on a Sunday, as 697 did yesterday, I understand it's not going to be the top storyline come the next day, but it should be number two. And that's all I'll say. And then lastly, the U.S. Open concluded yesterday in dramatic fashion. Well, maybe not dramatic, but from a standpoint of a tournament to remember, Carlos Alcaraz, 19 years old, who had two epic tournaments during the week to where his matches didn't end till almost 3 in the morning. Four, four and a half, five hours plus, where I'm sure his legs were like wet spaghetti noodles, And then on Friday, when he had to go up against Francis Tiafo, who everybody was rooting for, the first American to get to a Grand Slam semifinal in forever. And Tiafo was fantastic. He was valiant and full of class and defeat. Fought hard, came back, won all his tiebreakers, as I believe he was 8-0 in tiebreaker sets, and was just more than what you could ever ask for. But Alcaraz was just that good on Friday night as he beat Tiafo in five sets. And then yesterday was the clincher beating Casper Ruud in four sets. 
And when we look at tournaments, and I understand we don't look at tennis the way we do like the other sports. So, for instance, when you have that heroic moment, when you have that stretch to where somebody hits a big home run or somebody makes that incredible catch, for instance, the helmet catch goes into not only NFL lore but the sports lore not only because of the catch, but because the Giants won a Super Bowl against an undefeated Patriot team. If he would have caught that ball and they didn't score, yes, people would remember it because of how great the catch was, but it's a footnote to the Patriots going on an undefeated season and winning a Super Bowl. So when you have that type of moment in tennis, of course, it's not going to stick or it's not going to last like a helmet catch or some of the other things that had happened when we look back at championship runs or titles that had that one defining moment. Look at the tuck rule. There's another one where we look back at that, and if that was a fumble, obviously the Patriots wouldn't have gone to a Super Bowl, and who knows how this whole Belichick run of the Brady era would have turned out. But my point being with Alcaraz is that when you look back at the 5-hour and 15-minute match that ended at 2.50 in the morning against Yannick Sinner, when you look at him beating Tiafo, granted, it wasn't late in the night. It was well over four hours, but it was five sets. It was against Tiafo. It was a war of attrition, and Alcaraz came up on top. And then to cap it off yesterday with the win, number one player in the world. What a performance by Alcaraz. Just one to remember when we think back at the 2022 U.S. Open. And this kid, I'm looking forward to seeing how his career plays out because the next big thing in tennis has arrived. There's no other way to cut it. I get it that Nadal is still around and also Novak Djokovic is still going to be around for a couple more years, but that's going to be interesting if Djokovic, the old guard versus the new and it guy on the block, if they face off in any semifinals or Grand Slam final matches, those are going to be ones that you're going to have to pay attention to especially when you get to the Grand Slams. And the next one's not going to be until January, late January, at the end of the football season when we're talking about championship weekend with the Australian Open. So congratulations to Alcaraz, a stupendous performance, no matter how you slice it, and good for him as he wins his first ever Grand Slam major title. And on the women's side, Iga Swiatek, congratulations to her. She won the French Open back in late May, early June, and now she gets her second and third overall Grand Slam major title, beating on Jabour, and sad for Jabour to get to back-to-back finals. Never the bride, always the bridesmaid, at least in these last two major tournaments, but give it up to Switek. She has been the number one women's player here for a reason, and I get it that the field wasn't really competitive when we looked at some of the heavyweights being out of the tournament, whether your name was Naomi Osaka, we talked about the Angelique Kerbers of the world. I know she beat Joanna Pagula along the way. Serena, who obviously left in this tournament last Friday or the Friday before that. So we could look at Switek and take a 30,000-foot look to say it's been a dominant year for her. But again, the competition wasn't as stiff, even though... Jabour made it to -to back-to-back finals. And remember, Schweitek was out at Wimbledon. She did not make it to the final. But 
This time around, with two majors under a belt for 2022 and winning it in grand fashion, congratulations to Iga Swiatek for winning the 2022 U.S. Open. And now we'll pretty much put the sport on ice until we get to next year when the first major, as I mentioned, the Australian, will take place toward the end of January. And that'll do it, my good people. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for sticking with your little friendly podcast host here as I chime in on everything that's happening in the world of sports. And as I mentioned at the top, and I'll say it once again, if you haven't done so, your participation, which obviously is never taken for granted by yours truly. So please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. Just so we can increase the visibility so everybody can know who the J Reels podcast is as an independent entity. I do not have a team underneath me. Hopefully over time I'll have a little bit of a crew where I could get the word out a little bit better. But as for right now, yours truly is doing all the heavy lifting, not only just here in front of this microphone, which I love to do, but behind the scenes. So if you could just play your part and subscribe and give me a favorable review and a few stars. Again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you want to reach out with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or even a suggestion, you could do so by going to the following social media accounts. TikTok, the J Reels Podcast. Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. Or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then lastly, I know I have to pay more attention to this platform as... This endeavor, for those who want to contribute to it, it's my Patreon page. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put out of your pocket to not only be a part of this podcast and this platform where you'll get exclusive content. I know I have to get some traction with this particular platform. And in the weeks and hopefully months to come, I'll be able to put content on there just for you guys and gals who want to support me for the upkeep of the website, for this production, the equipment, etc. Whatever it is that you want to put forth, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it because whether you do or do not know, this is my love. Sports has been my first love and not going to say my only love because I have deeper loves than that when it comes to the human condition of life, but when it comes to sports, huh? This is what I've been doing pretty much since birth, people. Talking about it, once upon a time, even playing it. Not professionally, I get it. But still, it's in the blood. It's in the DNA. I'm here to stay. Not going anywhere, people, when it comes to producing this podcast for your edification, for your enjoyment, your entertainment, etc. Critiquing, praising, thoughts, opinions, analysis on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.